fun, really. Um, the, uh, Dr. Eamon Butler, um, as a lot of you will know, um, is a very prominent uh, public policy advocate in this country. He runs uh, with his colleague, Matt Peary, the Adam Smith Institute, which was founded in, in the late 1970s. And um, I've known Eamon for years, actually. Uh, and he's written a large number of books on a whole range of topics on economic policy, from price controls and the history of price controls uh, to works on many of the greatest uh, political economists um, of the 20th century, people like Milton Friedman, Ludwig von Mises, uh, and, of course, F.A. Hayek. Um, and as you all know, Hayek, of course, has this great LSE connection as he was uh, a professor of economics here between 1931 and 1950. So it is great to have uh, the talk today. Um, Dr. Butler is going to speak for about 45 minutes. If any of you on Twitter, the hashtag for the event today is LSE Hayek, so feel free to tweet. And after his 45 minutes, uh, we'll have a 45-minute uh, Q&A session. So I'm sure a lot of you will have a lot of questions. Uh, I think we should keep all the questions and interruptions until the end of the lecture to, to allow um, Dr. Butler free reign. But I think this is a fascinating time to have this sort of discussion you know, this is year five since the financial crisis. The economy is still not growing. There's huge problems, heavy unemployment, falling real wages, still a lot of bad debt. And a lot of people want to know, you know, what are the solutions? What are the alternative solutions uh, about how we should get out of the mess we're in today? And um, I'm really looking forward to uh, Dr. Butler, Butler's take on the subject. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed, um, Alistair. Um, the, uh, my title is, of course, uh, what, um, what Hayek would do. Uh, we are indeed in a, uh, a strange situation. I suppose if I was a politician, I might say um, in 2008, we stood on the edge of a precipice, and now we've taken a great leap forward. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's the sort of leap forward that we really want to have taken. Uh, and uh, Hayek, I think, would be uh, very alarmed at uh, what, was, what was turning out. Um, he does indeed uh, have a connection with this great institution. Um, the Queen uh, visited the London School of Economics uh, a short time ago, and uh, she asked... Why did nobody see the crash coming? And uh, all of the great and the good in this great institution uh, sort of looked at their shoes uh, and uh, had no answers. Uh, they simply could not explain uh, because according to the mainstream economic view, um, the crash should not have happened. Uh, there was nothing that suggested that it would happen. Um, so uh, Hayek, I think, uh, would have been aware that something was going amiss in the years uh, before 2008. Indeed, he was one of the few, uh, together with a colleague, uh, Ludwig von Mises, who uh, together they started an institute in Vienna to look at business cycles, and that was in the boom years of the Roaring Twenties. And they knew that something wasn't right here, that um, a boom like that needs some explanation. It can't possibly be real. Uh, and uh, Hayek uh, uh, and Mises started that institute, uh, warned about the problems that were building up in the American economy, uh, and just uh, four years later, we got the Wall Street uh, crash. So 
Uh, who was this, um, this man, Hayek? Well, as many of you will know, he was a uh, uh, classical liberal economist and philosopher. Um, he, uh, of course, got the, the Nobel Prize in 1974, same year as uh, Solzhenitsyn. Uh, that's him collecting it there from the, from the king. Um, and he got that for his work on business cycles in the 1930s uh, and on his theory of spontaneous order, really, uh, the, the idea that um, institutions, you know, social orders uh, can arise quite naturally uh, and they are structured and ordered, but they're not planned by every, anybody. It, it's a mistake to believe that in order to have order and structure, somebody somewhere has to give uh, uh, orders. Uh, on the contrary, you look at animal societies and indeed human societies and institutions like language, these things evolve quite naturally and yet they're still structured. So that was a, a very important uh, contribution. Uh, many people will, of course, remember him for uh, his uh, various books, The Road to Serfdom, a great sort of anti-Nazi um, uh, tract, uh, The Constitution of Liberty, where he tries to explain what the principles of a, a free society actually are, uh, and The Fatal Conceit, which is a, uh, a critique of socialism. Um, he was an Austrian uh, and a member of uh, what is now called the Austrian School um, of Economics, born in 1899, died in 1992. Uh, and uh, as I said, with Mises, he started the Institute for uh, uh, Business Cycle Research in Vienna. Uh, that's a picture of an office party, which uh, didn't look too jolly, but, uh, but there you are. Uh, and then uh, he became known as a, um, uh, quite a prominent uh, economist in the German-speaking world and was invited by Lord Robbins to join the staff of the London School of Economics. And uh, there's a publicity picture from the time uh, which shows um, an enthralled class of um, uh, rather mature-looking students, I have to say, uh, uh, listening, hanging on Hayek's every word. In the UK, he became um, a uh, uh, leading opponent of Lord Keynes up in Cambridge, uh, which led to uh, great debates and lots of uh, articles and, uh, uh, in the newspaper and all the rest of it, letters to the, the Times. Um, that's the only picture I've ever been able to discover of Keynes and Hayek together. It's not a very good one, but I think it's the only one that, uh, that, I, that I know of. Uh, they took diametrically opposed uh, views on many things, although they were great personal friends. And uh, Hayek's view was that uh, the boom uh, was the problem, uh, not the bust. The bust uh, was, was clearing up from the boom. And that you can't cure a recession by trying to recreate the boom which caused the problems in the first place. And as many of you will know, there is a, a, a recent uh, video presentation by Ross Roberts uh, which uh, rather explains this. Lord Keynes, welcome, sir. It's a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Your agenda. That won't be necessary. I am the agenda. <laughs> tell them I've arrived. And then tell them I've arrived. And your name is? Hayek. F.A. Hayek.
Freddy. Hey, listen, party up the Fed. John Maynard Keynes. Oh, F.A. Hayek. Yeah, yeah, we're opposed. We oppose each other philosophically in the same studio. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a woman for cycle and good reason to fear it. Playboy Winters It's the animal spirit. John Maynard Keynes wrote the book on modern macro. The man you need when the economy's off track. Depression, recession, now your question's in session. Have a seat and I'll school you in one simple lesson. 1929, the big crash. We didn't bounce back, economies in the trash. Persistent unemployment, the result of sticky wages. Waiting for recovery, that's outrageous. I had a real plan, any fool can understand. The advice, real simple. Who's aggregate demand? CIG altogether gets to Y. Keep that total grow and watch the economy fly. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. Hear their register cha-ching Circular so flow, the dough is everything So if that flow is getting low, doesn't matter the reason We need more government spending Now it's stimulus season, so forget about saving Get it straight out of your head Like I said, in the long run, we're all dead Savings is destruction, that's the paradox of thrift Don't keep money in your pocket or that flow will never live Because business is driven by the animal spirits The bull and the bear, and there's reasons to fear Its effects on capital investment, income and growth that's why the state should fill the gap with stimulus, both the monetary and the fiscal. They're equally corrupt. Public works, digging ditches, war has the same effect. Even a broken window lets the glass man have some wealth. The multiplier driving higher the economy's health. And if the central bank's interest rate policy tanks, a liquidity trap, that new money stuck in the banks. Deficits could be the cure you've been looking for. Let the spending soar, now that you know the score. My general theories made quite an impression. Revolution. I transformed the econ profession. You know me, modesty. Still, I'm taking a bow. So say it loud and say it proud. We're all Keynesians now. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. I made my case ready. Each listen up. Can you hear it? I'll begin in broad strokes, just like my friend Keynes. His theory conceals the mechanics of change. That simple equation, too much aggregation. Ignores human action and motivation Yet it continues as a justification For bailouts, payoffs, by polls with machinations You ride them with cover to sell us a free lunch Then all that we're left with is debt and a bunch If you're living high on that cheap credit hub Don't look for a cure from the hair of the dog Real savings come first if you want to invest The market coordinates time with interest Your focus on spending is pushing on thread In the long run, my friend, it's your Perspective. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. Play more interest rates. It's the animal spirit. The place you should study isn't the bust. It's the boom that should make you feel leery. That's the thrust of my theory. The capital structure is key. Malinvestments wreck the economy. A boom gets started with an expansion of credit. The Fed sets rates low. Are you starting to get it? That money is for real loanable funds, but it's just inflation that's driving the ones who invest in new projects like housing construction. The pool plants the seeds for its future destruction. The savings are real, consumption's up too, and the grasping for resources reveals there's too few. So the boom turns to bust, 
a matter of fact. Now it's the Dr. Capital that makes up a slack. Whether it's the late 20s or 2005, booming bad investments seems like they'd thrive. You must save to invest, don't use the printing press, or a bus will surely follow, an economy depressed. Your so-called stimulus will make things worse. Just more of the same, more incentives perverse. That's a wrap. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steal markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. Play low interest. No, it's the animal spirit. Um, it's actually an amazingly uh, fair and quite accurate portrayal of both sides of the argument, believe it or not. And there's another one which you can look at as, as well. Um, many people, of course, um, uh, go on to uh, caricature Hayek's uh, thinking uh, about uh, well, what to do once you do have the, this boom-bust cycle, which uh, he, he says. Um, and uh, many people say, oh, well, it's a council of despair, let the banks collapse, um, uh, cut spending, go for austerity, um, have a gold standard, all that sort of stuff. But Hayek was himself no um, advocate of uh, austerity, um, in the, in the uh, recession phase. Uh, in his view, the time for austerity is actually in the boom. Uh, that's when you need to, to cut back on your excessive uh, spending and credit and, uh, and borrowing. Rather, um, Hayek would say that uh, the key to getting through this is saving and capital accumulation. Uh, the boom-bust cycle destroys the creation of, of capital because it puts capital in the, in the wrong places, everybody's um, investing for boom times, and when the boom times are finished, your investments are in the wrong places, doing the wrong thing, and rejigging that, reshuffling those resources is ex an extremely long and rather painful process, and that's the recession. But price signals must be allowed to do their job, uh, steering their resources to their optimum uses. So government needs to get out of the business of fixing prices and wages. And you need to let markets work, uh, cutting red tape, cutting tax, uh, introducing more free trade uh, policies, uh, and, of course, keeping your money sound. So before you talk about the cure, I think we, we do have to understand what the Austrian school theory of the business cycle is, and Hayek's uh, a very important player in that. How do recessions come, across, come about in the first place? Well, the answer is bad policy. The economy, in order for the Austrians, is uh, an information system. Uh, prices guide consumers and businesses on the, the possibilities of production where they're most likely uh, to make money by, by investing. Uh, they coordinate, prices coordinate the activity of people um, all over the planet, uh, and in, in processes that may be years or even decades long, investments that, that last for 10 or, or 20 years. And so prices, according to the Austrians, according to Hayek, uh, must be free, or you get false information getting into the economy. You, you, you get a sort of a, a virus of false information comes into the economy, and it spreads out, and it affects the whole, infects the whole economy, and then before you know it, uh, you have some serious economic illness to deal with. The mainstream economists, I think, uh, would focus more on maintaining demand at a, a time like this and saying that we need more government spending. 
Um, Hayek points out that, on the contrary, growth comes from postponing uh, consumption, uh, saving your money, investing your money, building up capital so you can do things more efficiently. Uh, that is the way to create growth for the future. So they're quite two different views. And the Austrians say that it's not just the amount of capital that you've got, it's the structure of the capital. Structure is um, extremely uh, difficult and intricate. And it is a, a massive network uh, going all over the world, lots of different supply chains and lots of different companies and all the rest of it. It's a huge network, all interrelated, uh, and if you uh, disturb one part of it, you will disturb everything. There are long and complex production chains. I mean, just think about um, uh, car making and so on. To make a car, you, you, you need steel. That means you need ore. So you're talking about finding ore, drilling ore, uh, processing ore, trans uh, making steel, transporting that, getting it to the in, into the car manufacturers, getting the cars to the customers. It's a hugely long and intricate uh, mechanism. And even then, the fuel that you need to run the car, similarly, people will have to make long-term decisions about uh, uh, exploration and drilling and, uh, and, and supplying right up to the, to the petrol pump. So it's easy to disturb this intricate system with the virus of false information. Um, it's hard enough anyway to run these systems. You know, uh, entrepreneurs uh, take a risk every day trying to, trying to run them. But false information makes their job even harder. And according to Hayek, one of the most powerful uh, sources of false uh, information is interest rates. These are decided by governments, uh, not by markets, and they affect absolutely everything. Uh, in, they affect, interest rate affects how much you save, how much you invest, what you're prepared to, to spend on purchasing, how much you want to put in the bank, uh, all of these things. Interest rates should be the price of credit. They should reflect people's time preferences, whether they want satisfaction now or they're prepared to have it in the future. And they should reflect that like any other price reflects supply and demand. But they don't, of course, because governments tend to depress them in order to create a boom. You, your central bank uh, lowers the interest rates and people will borrow more and everything takes off. With easy credit, you get expansion, you get spending, you get optimism all over the place. People are prepared to take bigger risks. The banks will create more loans. Businesses and customers will borrow more. Everything seems to be on the, on the, on the up. The banks start taking big risks. Well, we've, we've seen that in this, in this recent round. Uh, but so do businesses. So do consumers. Uh, and... Uh, we all convince ourselves, well, this time it's real. There's uh, something, you know, in the 30s it was electricity. You know, we'd say, oh, it's the Internet. It's, it's real. We've, we, we've mastered it. We've got a real boom. But, in fact, it never is. And uh, the trouble is that uh, as well as uh, the interest rates encouraging people to uh, borrow, uh, it has the opposite effect on savers. And, and the kitty uh, is already uh, running shy because uh, uh, savers have started to, to run down their savings because they're simply not getting a decent return. Which means, of course, that all these people want to borrow to expand their businesses, uh, but at the same time, there is insufficient saving 
coming into the economy in order to, to finance that. So there's a mad scramble for resources. Many people will be unsuccessful uh, in that scramble. They will have half-finished factories and half-finished production lines, half-finished processes, half-finished networks built, and they won't be able to get the money uh, to finish them because they were started in, in a boom, optimistic environment, uh, and now when reality hits, uh, they're unaffordable. So there's a real loss of value. You know, people say, well, where did the money go? Well, <laughs> the money is, the value is, is what people think something is worth. And uh, when reality strikes, people think that those investments are worth very much less. So workers who have been hired in the boom get fired, assets get liquidated. Eventually, the uh, economy reverts to reality. And that's the sad, sad reality. The mainstream economists, of course, see uh, recession as an absolute disaster. The Austrians see it as extremely unwelcome, but at the same time, therapeutic, because it's the adjustment. The, the recession is the adjustment back to reality. We have to reshuffle our boom assets in order to produce things that we actually need uh, for, for the real world. And that takes time. You have to retrain and you have to move assets around, liquidate assets, take a hit, uh, but uh, eventually you will get there. Mainstream uh, economists uh, say that um, you can stimulate a business with more government spending, that you need to boost uh, demand. It's a, a view obviously associated with Lord Keynes. Uh, but as Austrian said, as, like in the film, that's just a hair of the dog. Uh, the stimulus doesn't actually move productive assets to where you need them now. They're still, they're still stuck where, where you've, you've had them uh, arising from the boom years. It merely perpetuates the problem. It keeps assets stuck in the wrong places because businesses can get easy credit. Uh, they don't abandon uh, their production uh, systems that don't work anymore. So that merely uh, perpetuates malinvestment and um, uh, all you will get, uh, if you're lucky, is, uh, is inflation. I, of course, knew all about that, having lived through the, the Weimar uh, inflation where it was actually cheaper to burn, uh, burn money than burn wood because a kilo of uh, money was not worth a kilo of wood. Uh, so people burnt money. Um, Looking at our problems today, um, frankly, we haven't actually had any austerity so far. Uh, if you look at uh, government spending, that's the, the red line there, um, it carries on pretty much the same as it always has. Other things, like investment, has uh, fallen dramatically, that's true. Uh, but uh, government spending carries on, and, and this we're told is, is, um, uh, is austerity. Well, it, it isn't. Uh, and meanwhile, um, talk of a stimulus would actually sort of make things worse. It, it may provide temporary uh, employment for builders and construction workers, but then as soon as the money is washed through, things revert to normal, according to Hayek. Well, the debt grows, and we've seen the debt growing both in the United States, United Kingdom. Um, so it may work for a time, a stimulus, but you've still got the fundamental problems. Uh, in terms of uh, solutions, uh, recession, as I say, according to Hayek, is the painful process of recovery that you just have to go through. It's like the hangover after your party. And uh, it's the process of past errors being collected. And some 
unsustainable assets will indeed have to be written off. People will lose their jobs. Uh, there will be a new pattern of capital and production will emerge, but it will be a very painful process. To minimize the pain of this inevitable recession that follows the boom, we need to ease the reshuffling of all of this productive capital, get it in the right place, physical capital and human capital, and to let markets work, and to let labor markets work, and indeed to boost saving, which according to Hayek is, is the only source of, of growth. Mainstream economists, I think, uh, would say, no, no, uh, you need to keep interest rates down so that uh, businesses have got money to borrow and then they can, they can invest and so on. Uh, but that is not what Hayek would recommend. And I suppose one could point to about five different things which, which Hayek would say. Firstly, we need saving. It's, it's urgent. Uh, market interest rates should, should prevail. We need to get people's savings uh, which at low interest rates they won't. New saving can help some of the abandoned uh, assets, that's true. Uh, but higher interest rates will actually uh, make businesses more realistic about the future rather than just having them uh, borrow for the sake of, uh, well, the money's cheap, so let's, uh, let's borrow and, and invest. So to reduce the, the risk that, that businesses are taking. Secondly, he would say that we need to... Um, uh, reduce marginal tax rates, uh, which I agree with. It was, uh, I think, um, Ben Franklin who said that uh, there's nothing so sure as uh, uh, death and taxes. Uh, unfortunately, though, they come in the wrong order. Uh, but uh, Hayek would want low taxes because that's a better in incentive to get people working. Um, you need to let prices show through the fog of taxation. Uh, so that people can see what is happening and know where they should be investing their, their money. And you need to cut taxes in particular on things like capital uh, and inheritance, things that allow people to, to build up supply of capital, which is going to make uh, uh, business and industry more efficient uh, in, in the years to come. You need to encourage that, uh, not to be saying that, uh, oh, well, we, we need to tax these rich folk um, who've got big inheritances or, or who uh, get big capital gains. A third policy is that one needs uh, to deregulate. I always say that for every action there's an equal and opposite regulation somewhere. Uh, we need to deregulate so that you cut the cost of new ventures. So when people want to start up new businesses uh, and uh, you know, get rid of the old businesses and start something new that's actually going to work in the, in the new reality... Uh, that it's cheap and easy for them to do that, that, uh, that they don't have lots of paperwork to fill in and red tape and all, and all the rest of it. That makes it easier for people to build up assets and to create jobs. Uh, fourth uh, policy, uh, perhaps the most uh, controversial, is that there should be no uh, restrictions on wages and, and indeed prices. So Hayek would scrap minimum wage laws. Uh, he would see it as essential that labor should be able to move freely so that it can relocate from the things that uh, uh, happened in the boom to the things that are going to take us through into the post-recession phase. 
Um, one of the reasons, I suppose, you could say why we have a million young people out of work now is that uh, minimum wages. It's not that the minimum wage is particularly high. It's just that it increases the risk uh, to employers. It increases the cost to employers. And they think, well, let's, you know, why don't we get somebody who's got experience rather than this young person that we'll have to tra train up and that will actually cost us uh, for the first year or so while we're training them. Um, and... Uh, Hayek would point out that the, the, the longer you've got all these wrong things going on, the longer your boom was, then the, the longer your recession is, is going to be. Another important point, the fifth important point, is that we actually do have to fix the banks. Uh, I don't believe, and I don't think Hayek would say, that the banks uh, have been uh, reckless or, or greedy. It wasn't them that started this problem. But banks accentuate the boom and the bust, because under the fractional reserve banking system, they're able to create money. It's called fountain pen money because they can create money at the stroke of a pen. Um, banks, of course, don't keep their savings. When you pay your savings into the bank, they don't keep that in the vault. They, they lend it out to people. This is what Hayek uh, called the, the loose joint. Um, that uh, they, they lend it out and then the people they lend it to put it in their bank, and the people that they lend it to put it in their bank. And so you're actually creating a huge uh, wave of, of deposits. And uh, it's easy to do that at the moment because the uh, liquidity ratios on banks are very low. They don't actually have to keep much cash in their vaults. They can lend out an awful lot. Uh, just to explain again how it, how it works, uh, Hayek would say, well, a central bank, this whole process starts with a central bank easing credit, making interest rates lower or easing credit in some way. Uh, that creates optimism. People borrow more. Uh, loans are cheaper. Customers spend their loans. Uh, they spend their loans uh, on suppliers. The suppliers then have money, which they put in the bank, and that bank lends it out to, to uh, their customers who are then buy other assets from suppliers and they put it in their bank and so on and so on. And you get this cycle of money creation. And it is really extremely rapid. At uh, the current UK uh, cash reserve ratios, um, you can uh, uh, make £100 uh, delivered to you by the central bank into about uh, £2,000 in just 30 of these iterations. Uh, and, as you see from the graph, still growing. You would need to have serious cash reserve uh, ratios in order to stop it growing and, and prevent the banks from creating this monetary boom. But you can't really blame the banks. You have to blame the central bank who started this hair racing in the first place. Uh, and Hayek's view was that uh, central bankers, unfortunately, simply cannot be trusted. Their job is clear to maintain sound uh, money and sound credit, but they will always fail. Uh, William McChesney Martin, uh, former Federal Reserve Chairman, once said that the job of the Federal Reserve is to take away the punch bowl uh, just when the party is getting going. And, of course, he's quite right. But the trouble is that central bankers themselves get carried away with the party. Uh, and... Uh, the temptation for them to, to take away the punch bowl is approximately zero because they enjoy the boom. They get the credit for the boom. Everybody was praising Greenspan and during the American boom years. 
uh, and I'm sure he was basking in that glow, uh, you can't expect central bankers, they're just human, to change their nature, to change their spots. So what we need, says Hayek, is some kind of mechanism to curb uh, the uh, expansions that are caused by central banks and to get them focused on their proper role. So this is not a scorched earth policy. It's not in favor of uh, deflation. Um, uh, He was in favor of uh, of limited money creation by government during the down cycle because the banks destroy money on the down cycle just as sure as they create it on the up cycle. So you have to do something about that. You have to have monetary policy that will replace uh, that money that's been destroyed. But you don't want so much as to create uh, another boom because that will just get you into the same cycle again. So we need rules to uh, prevent the profligate expansion of credit, uh, to prevent uh, bankers uh, creating false booms, as they're inclined to do, uh, and smoking their cigars uh, in appreciation of it. Um, So what are you going to do? Well, Hayek offered different solutions at different times in his life when circumstances were, were, were different. One, of course, was uh, he suggested 100% reserve banking. In other words, when you pay your money into the bank, um, the bank has to put it in the vault. It can't just lend it out. But I don't think that's a, really a starter because customers do understand that their money is being lent out. They do understand uh, that it's going to Uh, that it's not just put in the vault. But um, fractional reserve banking, nevertheless, does a lot of damage. It does create this, it exacerbates the cycle. Uh, Another thing which um, Hayek uh, suggested, of course, was was gold. Um, But that's hard to recreate today. In Hayek's uh, time, it was a natural system that had evolved. I think it's extremely hard uh, to recreate it now. And it depends on gold production, and you get all sorts of other other problems. And gold is so precious these days that you really have to print notes anyway. And so the chance of somebody printing too many notes and producing inflation is just as real uh, as uh, as it is with fiat currencies. Um, He suggested a commodity standard at some point. But then again, there are all sorts of difficulties there. It's very difficult internationally to to agree what kind of commodity would back your currency. So that's unlikely to fly. And the last one would be uh, competition in currencies. There's lots of currencies. Um, And uh, that would focus the bank, the central bank, on producing uh, sound money because it would be in competition with other people. And if other people produced money that was sounder than the central bank's money, then everybody would start using that rather than the devalued uh, uh, central bank cash. What we're trying today is uh, the the Basel uh, rules, the Basel solution. Um, And that is trying to keep uh, the commercial banks sound. But of course... According to Hayek, it's not the commercial banks, it's the central bank that causes the problem, and and you have to deal with that. Um, 
the Basel rules demand uh, that banks have certain capital ratios. Uh, we're, in the UK, we plan to raise bank capital ratios to 20% of assets by, by 2019. But the definition of capital is shaky in all of this. Um, it includes sovereign debt, which is, um, in some cases, uh, pretty disastrous stuff. It includes loans which come in from other banks. So um, what you and I would call capital is not what banks would call capital, uh, and you're trying to control something which is itself um, not very stable. Uh, Basel focuses on the danger of bank collapses, but that's, caused, that's just closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. It's the boom and bust cycle that causes this problem, and Basel ignores the fact of how banks distort the economy, add to the boom and to the, and the bust. It ignores how central banks start the boom racing, um, and remember that um, you know, once a boom starts, capital becomes very free and easy. So um, you've got a real problem. My friend uh, Robert Miller, who's a, a distinguished uh, city economist, ha has come up with something which uh, he thinks Hayek would be advocating today, which he calls the, uh, the uh, Freiburg plan. Uh, there is a picture of Hayek in his uh, library in Freiburg, where he lived. Uh, in his smoking jacket, he was never very far away from a pipe. Uh, he gave it up in his later years, but uh, otherwise he always had one somewhere. Um, and the Freiburg plan is named after this uh, town where Hayek uh, lived and where he thought about banks. And he also thought about competing currencies because just over that hill, uh, although Freiburg is in Germany, just over the hill is France, uh, and over the hill the other way um, is uh, Switzerland. So you've got... Uh, three different currencies circulating in Freiburg, and they seemed to circulate without any great problem, and everybody knew what the exchange rates were and would deal with them, and they would take anything and, and give you anything back which you wanted in any, any currency. So these two strands of bank regulation and currency reform uh, were something which um, uh, Hayek thought, up, uh, thought of in uh, Freiburg, where he spent uh, his later years. Um, Bank regulation, there's the man of the moment. Uh, they say that bankers are only interested in three things. And those three things are money, money, and money. Uh, but uh, according to uh, Robert Miller, whose uh, plan I was uh, quoting, um, cash is, is, is everything. Uh, you need a cash requirement on the banks rather than a capital uh, requirement. And he would say, uh, raise the uh, volume of liquid assets which the banks have to uh, maintain year on year until they're holding something like 30 or 40 percent of their assets in cash. And that reduces that money multiplier, that, that, that graph just going ever into the distance, um, and of course reduces the power of the central bank uh, to create problems. There's an argument, of course, that forcing the banks to keep more capital or, or certainly keep more cash would choke off growth. But Hayek would retort that the, uh, the source of growth is not bank lending. It is entrepreneurship and building up capital. Now, that's where growth comes from. So Miller would make his plan uh, really an alternative to, to Basel. He would say that uh, the banks could decide whether they were going in any particular year to, to do more on the Basel requirements or more in the 
holding cash, uh, the, the Freiburg uh, requirements of holding more cash. And when the economy is, is weak, as the Basel has, has discovered, uh, there are limits to uh, the amount of uh, capital or cash that you can force the banks to hold anyway. Um, so uh, there wouldn't be any requirement uh, to move in this direction when the economy continued to be weak. But it would have a powerful effect in staunching booms and therefore uh, killing off the boom-bust cycle. So as I said, um, uh, competition in currency was one of Hayek's later uh, ideas on this, uh, which he came up with in Freiburg. Um, allow private uh, bodies to issue their own money. Uh, so people will tend to use money that's sounder. Um, and they, there will be competition on the central bank. There will be less temptation to expand uh, credit. There will be fewer inflationary booms. Uh, all you have to do is to abolish the re legal tender rules, uh, allow people to trade in any currency that they wanted to trade in. Uh, the banks would have to, that are issuing the currency, firms or, or banks who issue private currency would have to um, guarantee them against some kind of standard, of course. You know, people wouldn't accept notes that if they knew they, they couldn't cash them in for anything, they, they've got to have some value. Uh, and that would keep the, uh, uh, the monetary system sound uh, because it was, it's straight competition. There'd be no incentive for a private supplier of currency to expand uh, too much because then people would lose faith in their product. Um, there would be obligations on government in all of this, of course. Uh, government would have to take any currency, uh, that, that's any reasonable currency. Um, they would have to issue their debt in various currencies. Um, they wouldn't be able to have differential taxation if, if, if you wanted to pay or do deals in particular currencies. Uh, you'd probably actually need a regulator in order to, to manage the whole system. Um, the official currency would probably remain for most everyday transactions. I remember going to Argentina once where um, this was, must have been in the 80s and they had a currency called the Austral uh, which has huge inflation and for everyday things you used Austral. If you wanted to do a, a big deal you used US dollars. So the US dollars had driven out the local currency um, for anything of any, any magnitude. Uh, whereas the local currency was deemed to be good enough, you know, for vending machines and things like that. Um, having private currency may seem radical, uh, but then uh, sovereign debt um, has actually been rather more shaky than corporate debt in, in the last few years. People seem to trust companies rather more than they trust government, and I can see why. So competition in currency should be feasible and there would be real curbs on the likes of Greenspan and uh, uh, Mervyn King to start booms no credit binge no painful hangover afterwards um, and so here's Hayek at the LSE in his later life I think that is what Hayek would do, banking reform competition in currency, massive deregulation, uh, that will get us through these things and just in case anybody plans to hit me with uh, questions about the monetary aggregates uh, later on. Uh, let me tell you, how many Austrian economists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, we don't do mathematics. Um, 
So that, I think, is what uh, Hayek would do. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you very much uh, for, for that presentation. Um, I, we're now going to open the floor for questions. We've got uh, about uh, 45 minutes. So um, what I'll do is uh, I'll just take one question after the other, and if the person who uh, I identify could just give their name and any affiliation, they'd be uh, much appreciated. So who wants to kick off any questions in this room full of eager students and others? who I'm sure must have a lot of questions. Gentlemen over there, please, if you could start. Uh, the, the person in red will give you a microphone, so if you don't mind waiting just one second. Uh, it's in the third row at the top. Thank you. Uh, I'm a PhD student here at the school. Just to take you back to Basel, you, you focused on the capital aspects, but there's also a whole liquidity aspect, which is more cash-focused and has strange weightings for retail cash compared to corporate mm. cash and attempts to term match balance sheets. Uh, what would Hayek think of that? Uh, and a follow-up question is if banks are forced out of, for example, the creation of long-term assets like 30-year home loans, surely other institutions would emerge to fill that gap? And then what would he say about the role of, of banks in creating money when, in fact, other institutions could, could do it? in different ways, using different instruments. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, well you're, you're quite right. The, the Basel um, rules are uh, very complicated, and I think that's probably one of their, their defects. There are, there are certain um, points of liquidity, but at the same time, as far as I understand them, I'm a, I have to say, Alistair, I'm, I'm a complete fraud because I'm not a real economist. I'm, I'm a sort of political economist. I, I follow the politics of these things rather than the minutiae of the numbers. But um, you know, as far as I understand it, the, the, the focus is principally on uh, capital, and indeed there are different weightings of different sorts of capital. Um, whether those are the right ones, I don't know. Uh, I think that there is uh, a, a case for just saying uh, cash is, is the important thing. It, it is what happens to, to cash because people pay cash into their, into their bank accounts. Uh, that that is, is loaned and, and you have uh, loans being paid into other, other bank accounts. You know, that's money. Uh, so let, let's put some limits on, on that. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm not quite sure I understood the second... Uh, it, the sec I think the second part of the question is what if non-banks start to lend and thus become money creators displacing traditional banks. For example, you mentioned lending for mortgages, but I suppose it could be funds or others. Oh, I see. Um, yes, well, you know, plainly, it seems to me that you would need uh, some restrictions on the, the non-bank uh, sector as well. I, I think the, the, the non-bank sector is extremely important. I mean, looking at uh, monetary policy, uh, most money is actually not held in banks. It's held in non-bank uh, institutions, um, you know, insurance, pensions, mutual funds, all of those sorts of things. But here we are uh, directing monetary policy at... Um, the banking sector um, when really it is the, the non-bank sector that we need to get to, to grips with. So um, central banks, uh, the central bank at the moment, uh, Bank of England is buying assets from banks and that has, <laughs> seems to have absolutely no effect on the economy at all other than to um, uh, keep some cash in, in assets. Uh, buying assets from the non-bank sector 
uh, non-bank private sector would, would boost uh, deposits. Uh, and that, I think, would uh, boost the economy, but it would also mean that people would be able to pay down their debt rather more. So I think you're quite right that the, the non-bank sector is, is an important thing to focus on. Right. There was another question uh, over there, please. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm Heider from uh, Bain & Company. Um, my question was, have any calculations or estimations been done to check what the impact would be of uh, the Freiburg plan or of Hayek's, uh, what, what Hayek would have done on uh, the GDP and um, the, the unemployment ratio? Because from what I understand, uh, what, from what you said, is if you would apply Hayek across consistently, you wouldn't get the boom and you wouldn't get the bust. But now that it hasn't been impl uh, implemented during the boom, it seems to me that the bust would go much deeper if you would apply Hayek now. So do you have a feeling if there would be a much bigger impact on unemployment and GDP growth or, or, or uh, decrease if, Hayek would, if we would start to imply Hayek, let's say, tomorrow or next week? Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, well, well, I mean, in answer to the first, as I said, we don't do numbers. Uh, but... Uh, um, I, it's a, it's a short-term and long-term thing. Um, yes, uh, I am very happy to admit uh, that uh, boosting government spending um, may uh, generate some jobs and employment in the short term. Whether it does so in the long term is, is completely different uh, kettle of fish um, because... That money has got to be paid, sorry, the money which the government is spending has got to come from somewhere. And where does it come from? The answer is it comes from other businesses who have to pay higher taxes, or it comes from inflation, which undermines your entire economic system, or it comes from borrowing, which means that it is young folks like you that have to pay uh, for the extravagances of old folks like me and Alistair. Well, me at least. Um, and uh, that really is the only places that it can come from. So uh, if you look at the, at the long term, what you want is a stable economy with the right conditions for people to invest uh, in businesses and to, to grow businesses and to hire people uh, and to create prosperity. You, you need an even foundation for that to happen. And the, the whole idea of Hayek's uh, plans are to create that and to choke off the temptation uh, to have booms and busts, which he thinks are not going to be cured in the long run by having that extra stimulus. The stimulus might help in the short run, but in the long run it doesn't. It's rather like uh, you, you've got a lake, and you dip a bucket into one side, and you run around to the other, and you toss it back in again with great fanfare, and you say, look at the jobs I'm creating but you, you forget the jobs that you're destroying uh, up at, the, uh, at the other end because you're raising taxes, you're destabilizing the currency, uh, you're, you're borrowing. So uh, the point is, yes, you're right, we're in the, we're in the recession phase, um, so would Hayek make it even worse? Uh, well, his view obviously is not uh, that it wouldn't make it worse. On the contrary, uh, his view is that you need to do some painful things in order to create the conditions for long-term uh, stability. You have got resources in the wrong places. Uh, we have an, an economy which is uh, geared up to creating luxuries 
And we don't need luxuries, we need everyday goods because the time, times are hard. Um, and therefore, in the long run, uh, that is the best medicine. But it is nasty medicine, and it will take a long time. Thank you. Uh, gentleman over there, please. Uh, Toby Chimis, uh, We Care Foundation. I agree with a lot of what Kayak um, kind of advocates, but um, on this area of kind of taxation, um, I think it's an area that um, needs to be explored a lot more because it's a little bit more complex. We've got you know, big companies like Apple sitting on huge cash holdings, kind of hoarding cash, and having some sort of mechanism for that money to sort of circulate back around the economy and actually invest it. Well, I think I would probably say that's not a problem of the, the tax system. Yes, you're right that companies at the moment are sitting on uh, a lot of cash. Now, why is that? Well, the answer is because they haven't the faintest idea where to invest that cash. They don't feel particularly confident about the future. Uh, and so th there's no point in building yourself a new factory um, or setting up a, a new production line if you don't think anybody's going to buy the product. So you leave it in the bank until something better comes along. Um, and fine, I suppose, you know, I mean, you could tax companies on how much cash they, they, they had in their, in their accounts, but um, that doesn't seem to be the right way to, to run an economy. What you actually need to do is to create more confidence. And the way that you do that, according to Hayek, would be to have uh, such stable conditions that people could actually make plans. Um, at the moment, we have quite high uh, inflation, and the, the inflation has been over target for how many months now? I mean, it must be, gosh, I mean, it's years. Most of the past few years. Yeah, it's years and years. And um, as a saver myself, I know just how much that erodes your, your cash, but it also makes it very hard to, to plan for the future. You don't know what future prices are going to be because inflation keeps going up and up and down. And inflation doesn't affect everything the same. It's not just like helicopter money being uh, spread over the entire economy. Inflation goes in at a particular point. It bids up prices in that point, and then they ripple out. So you never really know where you are. Um, and so you need to get rid of those sorts of things. And Hayek famously said inflation must be stopped dead. Um, and that would be a very painful thing to do, but he, feels, he felt that um, if you stop inflation dead, then at least people have got a, a sound uh, foundation on which to plan. They can see prices. They're not confused by the, the noise of inflation, if you like, with every price rising all at the same time, but, but, but to different levels. How do you know where prices are really rising, where you should really be put, putting your money. So um, I, I think this is, it's not a, a problem of taxation. I don't think it's a problem of the companies. I think it's a problem of, uh, uh, of confidence. And uh, you know, until we have a growth agenda which, which implies less taxation and deregulation, I think people are going to be very reluctant to, to invest in, in anything at all. Gentlemen over there, please. Uh, just uh, the, the back row, please. You uh, let yourself be introduced uh, of the uh, head title. What would Hayek do to sort out this, this mess? Uh, but uh, then afterwards, in your um, 
slides, uh, it was a bit uh, downplayed, this mess. Um, and you also ended your presentation with the notion of the light bulb and how many uh, folks it takes to change it. And you uh, pointed out that you were not into mathematics, and uh, later you also mentioned once more that you weren't into numbers. Now, I would say we have to, even if we are only doing political economy, we have to realize uh, there is a certain difference between uh, the Lehman uh, fiasco and the flash crashes, three of them, which happened afterwards, uh, in which, you know, the, the fog you mentioned and the prices. Uh, I'll give you one example. The, uh, the, the Knight Capital, uh, for instance, they lost uh, half a billion uh, within 45 seconds, and nobody ever found out where that money went. Whilst uh, the first flash crash uh, actually uh, had a gigantic uh, uh, decrease in, in the value, uh, not just on, on Wall Street, but Nasdaq as well. And uh, the money dis uh, appeared half an hour later again, and nobody can, uh, uh, can explain. Now, that definitely has something to do with models, with numbers, with algorithms and with other phenomena, which are obviously by now as important as everything else what you so far have mentioned. So your question is what then? Whether, whether mathematics matters? Yeah, by, uh, I, I question whether or not Keynes and uh, Hayek by now would be on the same side. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well, um, as I said, they were very good friends and they often were on the same side in, in, in many things. Um, I don't think that they would be on the same side in terms of the um, solutions to this, this mess or indeed um, any other. Uh, I, I, I think, I mean, you mentioned Lehman. Yep, I see that. And what you had there was huge inconsistency in policy by the politicians. You had a crash emerging, and they didn't know whether to let institutions go down or whether to prop them up. And I think Hyatt would probably say you should let them go down because uh, other people will come in and will uh, look at those companies and banks and anybody else um, and would uh, say, right, well, there are some, some useful and valuable and productive bits which are worth saving. Let's invest in those. But uh, there's a lot of uh, junk and bad business and uh, uh, crazy loans and all the rest of it. Let, let's ditch that. So, in fact, you know, Hyatt's view would be that the market would, um, would sort this out much quicker than governments trying to, to flap about and not really quite knowing what they would do. Um, so I think that that, that would be uh, his uh, solution there. I don't think I can say much more. I'm just chairing this meeting, so my job is to uh, try and get our speaker to answer the question. Read it in his paper tomorrow. Um, gentlemen, gentlemen, this, uh, just over there, please. Thank you. Oh, hi, thank you. My name is uh, Fernando Moret. I am here at the Philosophy Department, London School of Economics. I have two questions. Uh, what do you think the Bank of England did wrong? Because we know a lot about uh, the Fed and Alan Greenspan and all that. I don't know if you have any opinion on that. And then my second question is, uh, why do you think uh, the Adam uh, Smith Institute and the Institute of Economic Affairs have not been very effective and successful persuading the current conservative government with the different policies they have been uh, suggesting and, and producing? My impression is that they have been all very successful, and it seems that the conservatives are listening more to res publica from Philip Blunt. So why the, uh, the lack of success? Why 
Is there a lack of knowledge or what, what is happening? Okay, there are two questions. The, the role of the Bank of England and why have think tanks been ineffective at, at convincing the government that the kinds of ideas you have are right? Um, right, well, those are two very easy questions, I'm glad to say. Um, yes, the Bank of England made some major mistakes, and I think that, um, in, in my view, it is the sole uh, creator of our present difficulties um, because it did indeed um, expand, keep the credit expanding, um, it failed to meet inflation targets at a time when prices should probably have been falling. The Chinese were selling us boatloads of cheap knickers. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, that should have, our prices should have been falling. But they weren't, they weren't even being kept to 3%. So the Bank of England was clearly over-egging the pudding. They realized that they were over-egging the pudding. Um, and, and so they... Uh, they immediately and rather disastrously reversed that policy. Not surprisingly, the bank started to get into difficulties. And then what did it do? Well, it squeezed even harder and then gave them lectures about how profligate they'd been. It's, you know, America's, the American thing with the subprime loans and all the rest of it, yes, it's got some effect. But this crisis is a crisis of our own making in this country. Um, it was principally the bad monetary policy from the Bank of England, bad credit policy from the Bank of England, which has created it. And that is one of the reasons why, well, it is the reason why Hayek thinks that you need much firmer controls over central banks and you need a much more automatic system to make sure that these sorts of problems don't happen again. As for how successful or not we are in shaping the debate, I think it's interesting that... Um, Despite the fact that in the early years of months of the crisis, um, everybody was talking about the need for new Keynesian policies, in fact, and, and indeed everybody was saying capitalism's dead and we've had it, the free markets you know, washed up. In fact, uh, there has been more and more interest in the Hayekian solution, uh, certainly among the intellectuals, uh, and more and more realization that no, actually, capitalism isn't washed up, it isn't dead, and crony capitalism has caused us a lot of trouble. Uh, but the, the incestuous relationship between banks and governments has caused us a lot of trouble, there's no question about that. Um, and, uh, and the money is, is going to the, to the bankers and not the public. There's a lot of agreement on that. Um, but I think that the, the Hayekian solution is very difficult for politicians certainly at this stage of the cycle, because um, politicians want everything to be good and they want it to be good now. Uh, they don't want a, a council, uh, somebody set, telling them, no, um, you can't keep expanding. Um, you should actually uh, let interest rates rise uh, because you do need more capital, you, you need less consumption. Um, that's not a very nice message if you're a politician because you're going into the election uh, not with a boom happening. So politicians are much more inclined um, to have the hair of the dog and to uh, try to create uh, another boom in order to correct where we are at the moment. Uh, and that, says Hayek, is the, the damnation and the danger, that uh, by trying to create another boom, you simply start the whole process over again. Gentlemen at the back, please, in green. Oh, uh, ben Mason, member of the public, also not an economist, but nevertheless, I have a question about your 
private currency uh, scheme that you suggested. And what you said was that the different currencies would have to be sound and backed up by the right things. Otherwise, uh, well, that would be the basis whether or not people would use them. Uh, and that would apply presumably to everyone in the economy and members of the public and laymen. Um, and I'd like to suggest that, that's, that we should be sceptical about that assumption. And as a cautionary example, as I understand it, before the boom, investment banks and speculators weren't very successful differentiating good debt from bad debt. And, and, and these are you know, people with PhDs and that's their job. Uh, or is there an important difference between the two cases? Um, yeah. Um, yes. I, I mean, I, I think that currency, like anything else in the market economy, depends on trust. Uh, we use certain companies because, and we buy their products because we trust them and we think those are good products and they will serve us well. And the same would have to be true with currency. So uh, if a bank or indeed if a private company uh, issued its own currency uh, in competition with the official currency, then I think that uh, people would want to know, well, you know, is this the real deal? Um, or are you just going to print as much as you can so I'm holding your currency and then suddenly I find it's not worth any more and you've made yourself very rich. So they would need to demonstrate to the public uh, that, no, uh, they are not going to inflate their currency. It is actually going to keep its value. And I think people would look at the uh, past track record of people uh, and they would look at your currency and they would look at the exchange rate between your currency and other people's currency uh, and they would trust the one that seems to keep its value. At the moment, the only thing you can trust is gold, which is why um, its price is, is, is going through, through the roof. Um, what you need is, is a variety, a, a choice uh, that, that you can have. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, can you, can you trust banks that, you know, couldn't even differentiate good from bad debt? Well, the trouble is, you see, they didn't have to. We have very little competition in banking in this country. We have, I think, seven independent bank groups. We've had one retail bank created in the last 130 years. Uh, it, it is a tiny market. It is a, there is no competition in it at all. And I think we need a lot more competition in banking. And then we might actually get a better service from our bankers. And, and I think probably uh, that would expose bad banks much more quickly than uh, they've been exposed in this, uh, this round. Uh, gentleman over there, please. Just wait for the mic. Thanks. Yes, hello. My name's Toby Glenn. I'm an alumni of the school and an uh, uh, advocate of Austrian economics uh, and an investor. Uh, the question I have is that uh, given, given the democratic uh, cycle, um, how is it ever possible for, uh, for uh, Austrian economics uh, to be sold by politicians given that a five-year cycle, uh, no one's going to vote for pain, they're always going to be uh, voting for someone that offers them short-term benefits, is really the only chance of an Austrian uh, policy being implemented, a major currency crisis with massive inflation and then uh, people advocating sound money might, might succeed. But otherwise, is it not really a utopian um, philosophy given that in a democratic society perhaps it could only be implemented in an autocracy? Okay, thank you. Well, I, I, I do share your opinion of politicians. I have a, a, quite a, a low 
opinion of politicians, and I've never yet been disappointed. But um, at the same time, I think uh, there are many uh, worthy people in, in, in government, um, uh, not just in, uh, politicians but, but officials as well, who do see the benefits of having um, a stable economic system that isn't prone to boom and bust cycles. And I think that the boom and bust cycle is more understood now than it used to be, that Hayek is, is indeed back in fashion, just as Friedman uh, made us aware of the dangers and causes of inflation. So um, a, a new interest in, in Hayek has made us aware of the dangers of a boom and bust cycle. So I think there are a number of people there, and I know many folk in the House of Commons, who you know, accept this explanation and say, yeah, we, we, we want to have curbs on central banks and curbs on banks to make sure uh, that we don't get this boom-bust cycle uh, happening again. But, you, but you're absolutely right. You have to lay down some rules on that. Otherwise, uh, governments will find a way to use the, the system to create uh, a boom which will have a short-term effect uh, just before a, an election. You're, you're absolutely right in that. But I don't... Well, but firstly, I mean... Even if it's politically difficult, I think we should still say that that's what ought to be done. And secondly, can it be done? Well, I think it probably could. I, I think uh, when you look at inflation throughout the world, I mean, after Friedman, it's still too high. But golly, I remember a time in the 90s when world inflation averaged 30%. Right now, now it doesn't. Okay, We can do these things as long as we're optimistic and committed. Gentlemen of the, the back... Thank you. Hello, David Pinnegar, member of the public. Um, I'm taking my, the, the clues for my question from three things uh, that has emerged today. Uh, one was um, that um, in previous recessions um, we've looked at um, electricity being the big thing to get us out of it, then the internet. And then we look at Apple with its enormous cash reserve and you're saying, well, Big companies do not want to know what to do. People don't know what to invest their money in. And I'm just wondering that at the root of industrial society is the energy supply, the resources supply. And is the um, inability to decide what's next actually a preliminary indication of the extrapolation of industrial society to its finality based upon lack of energy, uncertainty of supplies, uncertainty of sources, uncertainty of prices, and similarly with raw materials such as rare elements such as cobalt and the like? Um, no, I don't agree with that. Um, one of the interesting uh, things is that um, while mainstream economists talk about boosting demand, Hayek points out that, well, demand is always for something. And if you're boosting demand at the moment, you're boosting demand for the wrong things. You're boosting demand for, for the, the boom cycle stuff. And you really need people demanding other, other, other things. So um, he's very concerned about trying to manipulate demand. In terms of energy, um, sure, it is, it's, it's, uh, it's a risky uh, resource like many others and I think geopolitical uh, situation makes that even more risky. Something like 90% of the world's oil production is in the hands of governments rather than uh, private uh, companies in production. 
uh, it's governments that own, that own the oil. Uh, so it's not very surprising that that's going to be used in a political way uh, for, for political and foreign policy objectives. Uh, and we saw that right back in the 70s with, with OPEC. Um, so there are un- massive uncertainties, but uh, the market is um, incredibly inventive. And that if one resource looks a bit risky or shaky or indeed is in uh, short supply, then people will find all sorts of alternatives. And uh, I have absolutely no doubt at all uh, that uh, we will continue to uh, find and and create uh, new forms of energy. Uh, Fine, you know, as as coal runs out, you, you, you look at another resource which may be a bit more expensive. When that resource runs out, you look at something else, and that might be a bit more expensive. So the price is going up, but that makes you much more makes it much more urgent for you to focus on cost, to use the, the resource efficiently. And that's how the market works. People have been telling us we'll run out of oil for every decade for the, since 1902. And we've actually got more oil now than we've ever had before. We don't know what to do with the darn stuff. But it is a case of getting it out of the ground. Gentleman uh, over there, please. Thank you. Uh, There's been quite a lot of uh, discussion in the press recently about tax cuts for growth, and uh, you yourself, Dr. Butler, mentioned that you wanted to see tax cuts for growth. Well, um, the first thing I would like to know is if you were to have these tax cuts and they were to be funded tax cuts, uh, what sort of structural changes would you need in the economy at large? Because the difficulty that we seem to have is that uh, people have a lot of entitlements, and once you start cutting ba- budgets, it then gets very hard on pensioners and, and so forth. So I'd really like to know from you, if you were to have tax cuts, say, in the next two years, what sort of significant structural, I think, macroeconomic reforms would we need? Don't get me started. Uh, there's just so much which uh, government does which it shouldn't be doing in the first place or is doing extremely inefficiently, or that other people could, could do at the same time. Um, and, yeah, you're right. If you, uh, if, if you had tax cuts and you tried to pay for those through spending uh, reductions, you're going to make a lot of people very unhappy because they're going to lose their jobs. But arguably, uh, those are jobs which are not as productive as the jobs that you're going to create. Uh, and, you know, we have seen in the last few years the private sector creating more jobs than we've been losing from the public sector. So you, you can do this. You can do this. I mean, a lot of people do argue um, on, on the right that actually you need, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's funded by an increasing deficit. Let's face it, our, our deficit and our debt are off the scale anyway, so nobody's going to notice <laughs> an extra little bit. Uh, and, and they would say that, uh, you know, within two years, two and a quarter years of something like that, you would get the benefit back. You, you, you'd get the revenue back um, because taxes are too high. People are, avoid them. They don't pay them. If you had lower taxes, you'd get more enterprise. You'd get more firms being created. You would get uh, more people paying tax, um, you, more industries paying tax as well, m- more workers paying tax brought into the system, taken off the, the welfare rolls. Uh, But you're absolutely right. One of the difficulties with government is that there is a massive transfer sector which is extremely difficult to to rein in. 
uh, and I certainly wouldn't be suggesting that you should tear up the, um, the, the pensions contracts that people think they have with the government. Actually, they don't have any contract at all. It just depends on what politicians feel like at the time. Um, but I think that, that there should be certainty in those sorts of things. What I think there shouldn't be certainty in is, uh, is people thinking that they have a, a, a lifetime... Uh, that, that they can live off the government forever. So I think, yeah, we do, we do need to get serious about this. And I would do what the uh, Canadians did in the 1990s. Instead of just trying to slice a little bit off this budget and a little bit off that department and all the rest of it, you just say, all right, come on, what things is government there to do, like justice and policing and things like that? And, and what can it do better? And what does it not have to do at all? And maybe in that there, there are some things that, well, others some things that we'd actually like it to spend more on. So actually look at the structure of government rather than just, um, you know, do, do, it as, do it as a zero-based budgeting exercise and saying, what do we really want to spend on, rather than saying, well, you know, we've got a big beast, why don't we just, you know, cut, cut a toe off there and a finger off there. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi there. You're talking about... Um tax cuts to um, stimulate the economy. Um, but then earlier on in one of your answers, you talked about how you know, we're spending more money on luxury goods and not the goods that we actually need. How do you see um, an economy where you have tax cuts to stimulate growth, but which don't lead to a concentration of wealth and more resources being spent on luxury products rather than the goods we need? Well, what I was saying, I'm sorry, that, that's my um, inarticulate way of presenting things. Um, you know, what I'm saying is in the boom years, um, production is focused on very grand projects, uh, but it's focused on uh, – because money is cheap. You can afford to um, produce things that are bigger and brighter and more expensive and uh, take longer to produce and have more refinements and twiddly bits and all of this sort of stuff. Um, and I, I just sort of said luxury. It's okay. so it's a, but it's not really like that. Um, so, yes, people um, are geared up to produce all of these things, which reality, and certainly the current reality, um, leaves as unsustainable. That, that We've been producing Rolls Royces and we actually need, need minis, so it's, it's, it's a bit like that. In terms of tax cuts and wealth, um, well, um, firstly, I, I don't worry about wealth. Uh, wealth is good. I want people to build up wealth. I would like more people in this country to be millionaires, quite frankly, because I think that, and Hayek would, would say this, that you need concentrations of wealth in order to build up capital, which is productive, which is going to make you more efficient, which means that you can produce more, which means that your cost of living goes down, uh, and everything is hunky-dory. So what you need is to create uh, to create wealth, create uh, capital, rather than to, to, to break it down. And policies such as, I would say, um, taxes on capital gains and taxes on inheritance break up uh, concentrations of capital, uh, which is exactly the, the, the wrong thing to do, um, and particularly if you're doing it all, all the time. As soon as people have built up any capital, you knock it away from them. Um, so how are you ever going to get businesses building up? You're not. And other people in the Far East who are, don't worry about these things are going to take over from you. Gentleman over there. Uh, 
Hi, uh, Rory Meakin, Taxpayers Alliance. Uh, you were a member of the 2020 Tax Commission, um, which published a report uh, ref uh, arguing for reform of the tax system, including two points. Um, and I'd like to ask you whether you think Hayek would approve of them. The first is the um, removal of corporate tax and placing tax only on distributions, which would remove the debt bias in the tax system. And the second is the system of tax uh, credits, um, which would remove the incumbency bias that exists um, under current corporate tax uh, code. Um, well, I think, yes, I would agree with both of those. I mean, I didn't have any part in, in writing those particular sections of that report. I only did uh, a piece on the morality of taxation. Um, but, uh, yes, I think in particular the uh, tax on, um, on companies um, is actually very damaging. Uh, and companies are not people. Um, if you want to tax people, then tax people. Uh, and we really do tax money over and over and over. Um, you know, you save money, you're taxed, and, well, you're taxed when you earn money, and then uh, when that money produces interest when you've got it in the bank, you're taxed on that. Uh, when you invest in a company, company's taxed, you're taxed. Um, so it, really you, you get the same money being taxed many different times. Um, so I would say, uh, yes, I think, uh, I think, I don't know what Hayek's view was it, on it actually was, but I would think that he would be um, extremely concerned about that. Certainly Friedman, Milton Friedman, certainly, who was a great friend of Hayek, of course, although they differed on many, many things, but um, that he would certainly say, uh, no, you shouldn't tax companies, tax distributions if you want, tax earnings, but, uh, but not companies. Um, gentlemen, Darius, please. Um, Akshay Rao, uh, member of the public. You were mentioning earlier about uh, interest rates and how Hayek thought if you raised interest rates, it would encourage people to save. Do you think he could predict a time when interest rates, interest rates were as low as they are now for the last couple of years, yet consumption hasn't increased? and savings actually increased. Um, do you think this is the new normal, and do you think this could have ever happened uh, in Hayek's time? Um, <laughs> it could happen any time. And I don't think, I'm not sure what happened in the 30s. You can maybe be historians who know more about that than I do. But um, no, I, I don't think that this, I don't think it's the new normal. I think it's the, the inevitable working out of, of what's actually going on in the uh, economy. Um, that interest rates are indeed low. The Japanese had exactly the, the same problem. But nevertheless, people are transfixed like rabbits in the headlights. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, and so they're not going to spend money. Consumption's not growing. And they're not going to invest money. Investment is flat. The only people who are spending money are the government. And they're spending my money on things I disapprove of, for the most part. So... Um, but, I, you know, I think that's just the, that's the situation that, that you're in. And unless you can do something to revive confidence in our economic prospects, then you've had it. And at the moment, people see, well, you know, folk in uh, Southeast Asia and so on are doing pretty, pretty good and, and 
uh, things, things are booming there. You know, this current crisis, we talk about world economic crisis, is actually highly concentrated in, in Europe and America and English-speaking world, and not even all the English-speaking world. Um, and um, the rest of the economy, the rest of the, the world economy uh, uh, is, is doing pretty good. Um, and, but we're, we're transfixed. Unless we can actually encourage people um, to take a long-term view, to see that there is business out there which they can get, uh, and to invest in capturing that business, then we've had it. And I think you have to um, make the conditions easy for them to do that. Diogenes, the cynic. Well, this was a clue in the Telegraph crossword today. My wife said, oh, who was the cynic who lived in a, pu- in a tub? And it was, of course, Diogenes, who was a, 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 a Greek philosopher, um, lived in uh, a barrel, and um, he was once visited by Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great said, Diogenes, uh, what can I, Alexander the Great, with all my wealth and armies, what can I do for you? And Diogenes said, stand out of the sunlight. Uh, and I think that's what governments have got to do. They've got to stand out of the sunlight. At the moment, we are taxing um, businesses very heavily. We're taxing earners very heavily. Uh, we're taxing profits and capital gains and, you know, you name it. We have tens of thousands of pages of regulation. Uh, the new financial um, conduct authority uh, has produced just, just headlines of what it intends to do, which is, I think, 100 pages long. That's just the headlines. Never mind, you know, getting get into the detail. We've got, we've got a tax uh, guide which is... Uh, uh, 10,000 pages long of complete gobbledygook. It's not surprising that people aren't starting businesses. They're just scared. And you've got, I would say, minimum wages, and you've got long-term uh, employment contract law. Uh, you've, you've got all sorts of um, uh, you, you know, time off for maternity and paternity and, and all sorts of rules and regulations like that. They may be good rules to have, but they are extremely costly. And when things are looking bad, it really does raise the risk of starting a business or of expanding a business and of taking on new people. I know that from personal experience. Um, So it's not surprising uh, that people um, are not saving and they're not spending and they're not investing. Right, we've got time for one quick question and a very quick answer uh, before we all boot out of this room. So um, who'll get the last question? Um, Gentlemen over there, back row. If you could keep it quite quick, please, thanks. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm studying international political economy here at the LSE. Uh, I got one question concerning the regulation of banks. Uh, you're pretty right in pointing out that there is no bank that has like, started in the past 100 years or so, so there definitely has to be more competition. But on the other hand, my question is, aren't there also quite a lot, a lot of banks that are too big to fail? And would Hayek approve this? that banks are so big that uh, you can't do nothing about them because they're too big to bring them to trial, as one Democratic senator has pointed out a few, uh, a few days ago. And I think that pretty much also distorts the market. And uh, in that sense, you might consider some regulation or not. <laughs> um, I've got no answer to that except to have more competition. You're, you're quite right. We have banks that are too big to fail because we don't have enough competition in banking. And one of the reasons we don't have enough competition in banking is because we've got too much darn regulation over banking. You know, forget light touch stuff. Banking, bankers are regulated to within an inch of their lives, while the 
uh, crisis unfolded in 2007, 2008, the Financial Services Authority were busy telling banks how, how to treat their customers and telling them things like, you know, how long do you let the phone ring before you answer it? I mean, you know, talk about losing sight of the big picture. Um, so we've got far too much regulation on bank, which makes it extremely difficult. I mean, the new bank has just been started, Metro Bank. The number of hoops that they've got, had to go through, including getting all sorts of great and good people on their board, principally for win window dressing, because that's what's going to sway the regulators. It's absolutely absurd. We need banks that are smaller, which can fail, because in a market economy, some businesses fail. Usually they're not wiped out completely. What happens is other people come in and they pick up the good bits and the bad bits are wiped out. But that's what you want to happen in an economy. You want the good bits to be preserved and the bad bits to be wiped out. So more competition is my answer. Right. Well, uh, on that note, uh, thanks very much for all of you uh, for attending tonight and uh, thanks very much to our speaker. Thank you.